0: Section 9 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand, Charles Robert Darwin, Part I, one. 1809 to 1882, His Place in Modern Science by Mayo W. Hazeltine. There is no doubt that by the judgment of a large majority of scientists, the place of preeminence in the history of science during the 19th century should be assigned to Charles Robert Darwin. The theory associated with his name deserves to be called epoch-making. The Darwinian hypothesis, indeed, should not be confounded with the cosmic theory of evolution, which was formulated earlier and independently by Herbert Spencer, and supported by many arguments drawn from sources outside the field of natural history. The specific merit of the Darwinian hypothesis is that it furnishes a rational and almost universally accepted explanation of the mode in which changes have taken place in the development of organic life upon the earth. With the possible cosmical applications of his theory, Darwin did not concern himself, though the bearing of his hypothesis upon wider problems was at once discerned and has been set forth by Spencer and others. Before stating, however, the conclusions at which Darwin arrived in his Origin of Species, The Descent of Man, and other writings, and before indicating the extent to which these conclusions have been adopted, we should say a word about his interesting, amiable, and exemplary personality. Concerning his private life, there is no lack of information. He himself wrote an autobiographical sketch which has been amplified by his son Francis Darwin and supplemented with numerous extracts from his correspondence. 1. Charles Robert Darwin was born at Shrewsbury, February twelfth, eighteen 1809. His mother was a daughter of Josiah Wedgwood, the well-known Stratfordshire Potter, and his father, Dr. Robert Waring Darwin, was a son of Erasmus Darwin, celebrated in the 18th century as a physician, a naturalist, and a poet. It is a curious fact that in some of his speculations, Erasmus Darwin anticipated the views touching the evolution of organic life subsequently announced by Lamarck, and ultimately incorporated by Charles Darwin in a theory that bears his name. The only taste kindred to natural history which Dr. Darwin possessed in common with his father and his son was a love of plants. The garden of his house in Shrewsbury, where Charles Darwin spent his boyhood, was filled with ornamental trees and shrubs, as well as fruit trees. When Charles Darwin was about eight years old, he was sent to a day school, and it seems that even at this time, his taste for natural history, and especially for collecting shells and minerals, was well developed. In the summer of 1818, he entered Dr. Butler's Great School in Shrewsbury, well known to the amateur makers of Latin verse by the volume entitled Sabrina Corolla*. He expressed the opinion in later life that nothing could have been worse for the development of his mind than this school, as it was strictly classical, nothing else being taught except a little ancient biography and history. During his whole life, he was singularly incapable of mastering any language. With respect to science, he continued collecting minerals with much zeal, and after reading White's Selborne, he took much pleasure in watching The Habits of Birds. Towards the close of his school life, he became deeply interested in chemistry and was allowed to assist his elder brother in some laboratory experiments. In October 1825, he proceeded to Edinburgh University, where he stayed for two years. He found the lectures intolerably dull, with the exception of those on chemistry. Curiously enough, while walking one day with a fellow undergraduate, the latter burst forth in high admiration of Lamarck and his views on evolution. So far as Darwin could afterwards judge, no impression was made upon his own mind. He had previously read his grandfather's Zoonomia, in which similar views had been propounded, but no discernible effect had been produced upon him. Nevertheless, it is probable enough that the hearing rather early in life such views, maintained and praised, may have favoured his upholding them under a different form in the origin of species. While at Edinburgh, Darwin was a member of the Plinian Society and read a couple of papers on some observations in natural history. After two sessions had been spent at Edinburgh, Darwin's father perceived that the young man did not like the thought of becoming a physician and proposed that he should become a clergyman. In pursuance of this proposal, he went to the University of Cambridge in eighteen twenty eight and three years later took a B.A. degree. In his autobiography, the opinion is expressed that at Cambridge his time was wasted. It was there, however, that he became intimately acquainted with Professor Henslow, a man of remarkable acquirements in botany, entomology, chemistry, mineralogy, and geology. During his last year at Cambridge, Darwin read with care and interest Humboldt's personal narrative and Sir John Herschel's Introduction to the Study of Natural Philosophy. These books influenced him profoundly, arousing in him a burning desire to make even the most humble contribution to the structure of natural science. At Henslow's suggestion, he began the study of biology, and in 1831, accompanied Professor Sedgwick in the latter's investigation amongst the older rocks in North Wales. It was Professor Henslow who secured for young Darwin the appointment of naturalist to the voyage of the Beagle. This voyage lasted from December twenty seventh, 1831 to October second, eighteen 1836. The incidents of this voyage will be found set forth in Darwin's public journeys. The observations made by him in geology, natural history, and botany gave him a place of considerable distinction among scientific men. In 1844, he published a series of observations on the volcanic islands visited during the voyage of the Beagle, and two years later, Geological Observations on South America. These two books, together with a volume entitled Coral Reefs, required four and a half years' steady work. In October 1846, he began the studies embodied in Syripedia, barnacles. The outcome of these studies was published in two thick volumes. The time came when Darwin doubted whether the work was worth the consumption of the time employed, but probably it proved of use to him when he had to discuss in the origin of species the principles of a natural classification from september eighteen fifty four and during the four ensuing years darwin devoted himself to observing and experimenting in relation to the transmutation of species and in arranging a huge pile of notes upon the subject as early as october eighteen thirty eight it had occurred to him as probable or at least possible that amid the struggle for existence which everywhere goes on in the animal world, favorable variations would tend to be preserved, and unfavorable ones to be destroyed. The result would be the formation of new species. It was not until June 1842, however, that Darwin allowed himself the satisfaction of writing a very brief abstract of his theory in 35 pages. This was enlarged two years later into one of 230 pages. Early in 1856, Sir Charles Lyell, the well-known geologist, advised him to write out his views upon the subject fully, and Darwin began to do so on a scale three or four times as extensive as that which was afterwards followed in his Origin of Species. He got through about half the work on this scale. His plans were overthrown, owing to the curious circumstance that, in the summer of 1858, Mr. Alfred E. Wallace, who was then in the Malay archipelago, sent him an essay on the tendency of varieties to depart indefinitely from the original type. It turned out upon a perusal that this essay contained exactly the same theory as that which Darwin was engaged in elaborating. Mr. Wallace expressed the wish that if Darwin thought well of the essay, he should send it to Lyell. It was Sir Charles Lyell and Sir Joseph Hooker who insisted that Darwin should allow an abstract from his manuscript together with a letter to Professor Asa Gray, dated September 5th, 1857, to be published at the same time with Wallace's essay. Darwin was unwilling to take this course, being then unacquainted with Mr. Wallace's generous disposition. As a matter of fact, the joint productions excited very little attention, and the only published notice of them asserted that what was new in them was false, and that what was true was old. From the indifference evinced to the papers which first propounded the theory of natural selection, Darwin drew the inference that it is necessary for any new view to be explained at considerable length in order to obtain the public ear. In September 1858, Darwin, at the earnest advice of Lyell and Hooker, set to work to prepare a volume on the transmutation of species. The book cost him more than 13 months hard to labor. It was published in November, eighteen fifty nine, under the title of Origin of Species. This, which Darwin justly regarded as the chief work of his life, was from the first highly successful. The first edition was sold on the day of publication, and the book was presently translated into almost every European tongue. Darwin himself attributed the success of the origin in large part to his having previously written two condensed sketches, and to his having finally made an abstract of a much larger manuscript, which itself was an abstract. By this winnowing process, he had been able to select the more striking facts and conclusions. As to the current assertion that the origin succeeded because the subject was in the air, or because men's minds were prepared for it, Darwin was disposed to doubt whether this was strictly true. In previous years, He had occasionally sounded not a few naturalists and had never come across a single one who seemed to doubt about the permanence of species. Probably men's minds were prepared in this sense, that innumerable, well-verified facts were stored away in the memories of naturalists, ready to take their proper places as soon as any theory which would account for them should be strongly supported. Darwin himself thought that he gained much by a delay in publishing, from about 1839, when the Darwinian theory was clearly conceived, to 1859, and that he lost nothing, because he cared very little whether men attributed most originality to him or to Wallace. Darwin's variation of animals and plants under domestication was begun in 1860 but was not published until 1868. The book was a big one and cost him four years and two months hard labor. It gives in the first volume all his personal observations and an immense number of facts collected from various sources about domestic productions, animal, and vegetable. In the second volume, the causes and laws of variation, inheritance, etc. are discussed. Towards the end of the work is propounded the hypothesis of pangenesis, which has already been generally rejected and which the author himself looked upon as unverified, although by it a remarkable number of isolated facts could be connected together and rendered intelligible. The Descent of Man was published in February 1871. Touching this work, Darwin has told us that, as soon as he had become, in 1837 or 1838, convinced that species were mutable productions, he could not avoid the belief that man must come under the same law. Accordingly, he collected notes on the subject for his own satisfaction and not for a long time with any intention of publishing. In The Origin of Species, the derivation of any particular species is never discussed, but in order that no honorable man should accuse him of concealing his views, Darwin had thought it best to add that by that work, light would be thrown on the origin of man and his history. It would have impeded the acceptance of the theory of natural selection if Darwin had paraded, without giving any evidence, his conviction with respect to man's origin. When he found, however, that many naturalists accepted his doctrine of the evolution of species, it seemed to him advisable to work up such notes as he possessed, and to publish a special treatise on the origin of man. He was the more glad to do so, as it gave him an opportunity of discussing at length sexual selection, a subject which had always interested him. Darwin's book on The Expression of Emotion in Men and Animals was published in the autumn of 1872. This had been intended to form a chapter on the subject in The Descent of Man, but as soon as Darwin began to put his notes together, he saw that it would require a separate treatise. In July 1875 appeared the book on Insectivorous Plants. The fact that a plant should secrete, when properly excited, a fluid containing an acid and ferment closely analogous to the digestive fluid of an animal was certainly a remarkable discovery in the autumn of 1876 appeared The Effects of Cross and Self-Fertilization, a work in which are described the endless and wonderful contrivances for the transportation of pollen from one plant to another of the same species. About the same time was brought out in an enlarged edition of The Fertilization of Orchids, originally published in 1862. Among the minor works issued during the later years of Darwin's life may be mentioned particularly the little book on the formation of vegetable mold through the action of worms. This was the outgrowth of a short paper read before the Geological Society more than 14 years before. In order to appreciate the enormous amount of research accomplished by Charles Darwin, it is needful to keep in mind the conditions of ill health under which almost continually he worked. For nearly 40 years, he never knew one day of health of ordinary men. His life was one long struggle against the weariness and drain of sickness. During his last ten years, there were signs of amendment in several particulars, but a loss of physical vigor was apparent. Writing to a friend in 1881, he complained that he no longer had the heart or strength to begin any prolonged investigations. In February and March 1882, he frequently experienced attacks of pain in the region of the heart, attended with irregularity of the pulse. On April 18th, he fainted and was brought back to consciousness with great difficulty. He seemed to recognize the approach of death and said, I am not the least afraid to die. On the afternoon of Wednesday, April 19th, he passed away. On April 26th, he was interred in Westminster Abbey. The funeral was attended by representatives of France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and Russia, and by the delegates of the universities and learned societies of which he had been a member. Among the pallbearers were Sir John Lubbock, Sir Joseph Hooker, Professor Huxley, Mr. A.R. Wallace, Mr. James Russell Lowell, the Duke of Argyll, and the Duke of Devonshire. The grave is appropriately placed in the north side of the nave, only a few feet from the last resting place of Sir Isaac Newton. 2. An outline of Darwin's personality would not be complete without a glance at some of his mental characteristics and at his attitude toward religion. Of his intellectual powers, he himself speaks with extraordinary modesty in his autobiography. He points out that he always experienced much difficulty in expressing himself clearly and concisely, but he opines that this very difficulty may have had the compensating advantage of forcing him to think long and intently about every sentence, and thus enabling him to detect errors in reasoning and in his own observations, or in those of others. He disclaimed the possession of any great quickness of apprehension or wit, such as distinguished Huxley. He protested also that his power to follow a long and purely abstract train of thought was very limited, for which reason he felt certain that he never could have succeeded with metaphysics or mathematics. His memory, too, he described as extensive but hazy. So poor in one sense was it that he never could remember for more than a few days a single date or a line of poetry. On the other hand, he did not accept as well founded the charge made by some of his critics, that while he was a good observer, he had no power of reasoning. This, he thought, could not be true, because the origin of species was one long argument from the beginning to the end, and has convinced many able men. No one, he submits, could have written it without possessing some power of reasoning. He was willing to assert that I have a fair share of invention and of common sense or judgment, such as every fairly successful lawyer or doctor must have, but not, I believe, in any higher degree. He adds humbly that perhaps he was superior to the common run of men in noticing things which easily escape attention, and in observing them carefully. Writing in the last year of his life, he expressed the opinion that in two or three respects his mind had changed during the preceding twenty or thirty years. Up to the age of thirty or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave him great pleasure. Formerly two pictures had given him considerable, and music very great, delight. In 1881, however, he said, Now for many years I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have tried lately to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have also almost lost my taste for pictures or music. Music generally sets me thinking too energetically of what I have been at work on, instead of giving me pleasure. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cost me the exquisite delight which it formerly did. Darwin was convinced that the loss of these tastes was not only a loss of happiness, but might possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional side of one's nature. So far as he could judge, his mind had become, in his later years, a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts, and that atrophy had taken place in that part of the brain on which the higher aesthetic tastes depend. Curiously enough, however, he retained his relish for novels and for books on history, biography, and travels. It is well known that Darwin was extremely reticent with regard to his religious views. He believed that a man's religion was essentially a private matter. Repeated attempts were made to draw him out upon the subject, and some of these were partially successful. Writing to a Dutch student in 1873, he said, I may say that the impossibility of conceiving that this grand and wondrous universe With our conscious selves arose through chance seems to me the chief argument for the existence of God, but whether this is an argument of real value I have never been able to decide. I am aware that if we admit a first cause, the mind still craves to know whence it came and how it arose. Nor can I overlook the difficulty from the immense amount of suffering through the world. I am also induced to defer to a certain extent to the judgment of many able men who have fully believed in God. But here again I see how poor an argument this is. The safest conclusion seems to me that the whole subject is beyond the scope of man's intellect, but man can do his duty. To questions put by a German student in 1879, he replied, Science has nothing to do with Christ, except in so far as the habit of scientific research makes a man cautious in admitting evidence. For myself, I do not believe that there ever has been any revelation. As for a future life, every man must judge for himself between conflicting, vague probabilities. In the same year, he told another correspondent, In my most extreme fluctuations, I have never been an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of a god. I think that generally, and more and more as I grow older, but not always, that an agnostic would be the more correct description of my state of mind. His latest view is indicated in a letter dated July 3rd, 1881. Here he expressed the inward conviction that the universe is not the result of chance. He adds, however, But when, with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the conviction in a monkey's mind, if there are any convictions in such a mind? The Duke of Argyll has recorded the few words on the subject spoken by Darwin in the last year of his life. The duke said it was impossible to look at the wonderful contrivances for certain purposes in nature, and fail to recognize that they were the effect and the expression of mind. Darwin looked at the duke very hard and said, Well, that often comes over me with an overwhelming force, but at other times, here he shook his head vaguely, it seems to go away. 3. We pass to a consideration of Darwin's masterworks, The Origin of Species, the variation of animals and plants under domestication, and the descent of man. Before indicating the conclusions reached in the first of these works, we should point out to what extent Darwin has been preceded by dissenters, from the belief, once almost universally entertained by biologists, that species were independently created, and once created were immutable. Lamarck was the first naturalist whose divergent views upon the subject excited much attention. In writings published at various dates from 1801 to 1815, he upheld the doctrine that all species, including man, are descended from other species. He pronounced it probable that all changes in the organic as well as the inorganic world were the result of law and not of miraculous interposition he seems to have been led to his opinion that the change of species had been gradual by the difficulty experienced in distinguishing species from varieties by the almost perfect gradation of forms in certain groups and by the analogy of domestic productions. With respect to the means of modification, he attributed something to the direct action of the physical conditions of life, something to the crossing of already existing forms, and much to use and disuse, or in other words, to the effect of habit. Finally, he held that characters acquired by an existing individual might be transmitted to its offspring. In eighteen thirteen, Dr. W. C. Wells read before the Royal Society an account of a white female, part of whose skin resembles that of a negro. In this paper the author distinctly recognized the principle of natural selection, but applied it only to the races of man, and in man only to certain characters. After remarking that Negroes and Mulattoes enjoy an immunity from certain tropical diseases, he observed first that all animals tend to vary in some degree, and secondly, that agriculturalists improve their domesticated animals by selection. He added that what is done in the latter case by art seems to be done with equal efficacy, though more slowly, by nature in the formation of varieties of mankind fitted for the countries which they inhabit. Again, in 1831, Mr. Patrick Matthew published a work on naval timber, and aboriculture, in which he put forth precisely the same view concerning the origin of species as that propounded by Mr. Wallace and by Darwin. Unfortunately for himself, the view was so cursorily suggested in scattered pages of an appendix to a work on a different subject, so that it remained unnoticed until Mr. Matthews himself drew attention to it in 1860, after the publication of The Origin of Species. We observe finally that Mr. Herbert Spencer, in an essay published in 1852 and republished six years later, contrasted the theories of the creation and the development of organic beings. He argued from the analogy of domestic productions, from the changes which the embryos of many species undergo, from the difficulty of distinguishing species and varieties, and from the principle of general gradation, that species have been modified, and he attributed the modification to the change of circumstances. The two volumes comprising the origin of species constitute, as the author said, one long argument. It is, of course, impossible in the space at our command to recapitulate in detail even the leading facts and inferences which are brought forward to prove that species have been modified during a long course of descent. We must confine ourselves to a succinct statement of the author's general conclusions. What he undertakes to prove is that the modification of species during a long course of descent has been effected chiefly through the natural selection of numerous successive slight favorable variations, aided in an important manner by the inherited effects of the use and disuse of parts, and in an unimportant manner, that is, in relation to adaptive structures, whether past or present, by the direct action of external conditions, and by variations which seem to us, in our ignorance, to arise spontaneously. It should be observed that Darwin does not attribute the modification exclusively to natural selection. What he asserts is, I am convinced that natural selection has been the main, but not the exclusive, means of modification. He submits that a false theory would hardly explain in so satisfactory a manner as does the theory of natural selection the several large classes of facts marshaled in the two volumes now under review. If it be objected that this is an unsafe method of arguing, Darwin rejoins that it is a method usual in judging of the common events of life and has often been used by the greatest natural philosophers. The undulatory theory of life, for instance, has thus been arrived at, and the belief in the revolution of the earth on its own axis was, until lately, supported by scarcely any direct evidence. It is no valid objection to the Darwinian theory of the origin of species that science as yet throws no light on the far higher problem of the essence or origin of life. Neither has anyone explained what is the essence of the attraction of gravity, though nobody now objects to following out the results consequent on this unknown element of attraction. Why, it may be asked, did nearly all the most eminent naturalists and geologists until recently decline to believe in the mutability of species? Darwin replies that the belief that species were immutable productions was almost unavoidable as long as the history of the world was thought to be of short duration. Even now that we have acquired some idea of the lapse of time, men are too apt to assume without proof that the geological record is so perfect that it would have afforded plain evidence of the mutation of species if they had really undergone mutation. The chief cause, however, of the once prevalent unwillingness to admit that one species has given birth to another— and distinct species, is the fact that men are slow to admit great changes of which they do not see the steps. The difficulty is the same which was experienced by many geologists when Lyell first insisted that long lines of island cliffs had been formed and great values excavated, not by catastrophes, but by the slow-moving agencies which we still see at work. The human mind cannot grasp the full meaning of the term of even a million years, cannot add up and perceive the full effects of many slight variations accumulated during an almost infinite number of generations. End of section 9.